People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And for the first time in over a month and a half, we just have books to discuss. There's no interviews. Just looking back over the last month and a half, we've had an absolute star-studded, author, star-author-studded list of authors who've been talking to us over the phone, in person, and uh, it's been absolutely eye-opening to hear their journeys, their, 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 their processes of writing, the varied topics that they've written about, from Imogen Hermes Gawas, The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, which is shortlisted for the Women's Prize of Fiction, which is going to be announced in the next week, to Mandy Wiener tracking South African crime. We've spoken to New York Times bestseller author Greg Hurwitz, who's, who was in South Africa to be at book festivals and to talk about his Orphan X series of books. And uh, Kate Moss, the historical fiction writer who launched her the first book in her quartet set in France itself and in France. It's been an absolute, absolute, uh, it's just from my perspective, reading the books and interviewing the authors, it's been an absolute roller coaster ride full of so many, so many interesting books and so many wonderful authors. Today's show is a full show, but today it's just the books. And we've got a long list of books to discuss and to get through books that are in the va- that are in the shops they're available right now it's a very varied selection of books some fiction some non-fiction some literary everything carefully chosen so that uh, we present to you our audience some of the best titles that you can see when you walk into a bookshop the first book I'm going to talk about is called The Seal Woman's Gift, and it's written by Sally Magnuson. It's published by Two Roads, and it's a very different book. It's historical fiction, but just a very, very different mix of two very different cultures. In the 17th century, Barbary pirates prowled European waters, abducting men, women, and children and selling them in the slave markets of Algiers and Morocco. In 1627, pirates raided Iceland, and the Reverend Olafur Egilson, his wife and their children, were taken from the small coastal island of Westman, along with some 400 of their friends and neighbours. After a long and difficult voyage aboard an overcrowded ship, they arrived at the Algiers slave market. The islanders were sold... But Eligsson was freed so that he could go to the king of Denmark, Norway and Iceland, to petition for a ransom for his compatriots. Eggleston wrote about his experiences in his memoir, The Travels of Reverend Olafur Eligsson, captured by pirates, and that was published uh, yeah, in, 19, in sorry, 1627. But there are no records of how his wife Asta fared in a foreign land. Sally Magnuson, for her debut novel, has given voice to Esther, and she emerges as an intelligent, courageous woman, making the best of what life has thrown at her. Esther has been contentedly married to a much older husband, that's Egilson, for several years. They have three children and a fourth on the way. 
Life in Westman is hard. This is Iceland, so it's the land of ice and snow. The weather is frequently bleak, and feet never seem to get dry. Eggleston is a good and godly man, preaching the Lutheran word to his flock and chastising Esther for her belief in for her belief in elves, the invisible people, and her love of the old Icelandic sagas. When the pirates appear, only a handful of islanders manage to hide. Some are killed, but Eggleston, Esther, and two of their children are rounded up with the others. Conditions on the pirate ship are appalling, and Magnuson, the author, skillfully evokes the filth stench and claustrophobic atmosphere as Asta gives birth to a son she names John. While on board, Odrun, an old woman who claims to be a seal woman and has visions of the future, gives Asta a warning that will take her years to understand. You remember Gudrun from the Laxdala saga, she croaks. Do not do as Gudrun did. The islanders' arrival at the slave markets sees them treated like livestock. Magnuson shows her fear and humiliation as they are examined and have their teeth checked. Asta sees her son Egil being bought by the Pasha, and Egilson is sent to negotiate a ransom. Meanwhile, she and her daughter and baby son are bought by Ali Pitterling Silerby, a rich Moor who lives in the dazzling white city of Algiers. In the harem, Asta is overwhelmed by the riot of colours and fine fabrics, as Magnuson subtly contrasts Asta's new life in Algiers with the grey island existence in Iceland that she has left behind or she's been forced away from. The habits and customs of the Islamic household are viewed through Asta's frequently astonished eyes. Food is so abundant that the excess is fed to the animals in the evening, and the variety of fruits and spices are a revolution to someone who has spent most of her life surviving on fish and eggs. With the hot sun and beautiful gardens, Asta's life in the harem takes on a dreamlike quality. Her owner, Sillaby, takes an in an interest in Asta and her Icelandic sagas, summoning her in the evening to talk while he relaxes with his coffee and pipe. Through Asta, Magnuson gives tantalizing summaries of the sagas, but they're not told in full. The sagas, the Icelandic sagas, are Asta's link to her old life, her comfort when she thinks about her husband and son and wonders if they have survived. Stories are also important to the other women in the harem, the Arabian Nights being as essential to their lives as Asta's sagas are to her. After several years, Asta has become reconciled to her life in Algiers. But when news arrives that a ransom is being paid, she has to make a heart-breaking decision. This is the book, um, The Seal Woman's Gift, about an Icelandic woman who is kidnapped by slaves, by, by Arab slaves, slave traders, and sold in Algiers. Magnuson, uh, Sally Magnuson is the author of the book. She's chosen a fascinating and little-known historical event as the starting point for her tale of surviving and even thriving against the odds. She adds a much-needed female perspective to Eggleston's memoir of his journeys, 
providing Aster with a fully rounded personality and a curious mind to explore the new world she finds herself in. What doesn't change, of course, is that Aster is subject to the rules and regulations of men, whether she is in Iceland or Algiers. The book is The Seal Woman's Gift. It's based on a true event, and Sally Magnuson used the memoirs of Asta's husband, Eggelson, as the point of departure for this for this extraordinary book. Uh, in his book, written in the 1600s, he writes about the 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 pirate attack on the town in Iceland, on Westland where he lived, and his part of the story. And in the Seal Woman's Gift, Sally Magnuson tells us his wife, Asta's side of the story. So that's The Seal Woman's Gift by Sally Magnuson. It's published by Two two Roads, and it is available in the shops right now. And we'll be back with more books right after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM discussing books, some very powerful reads. We've just discussed The Seal Woman's Gift by Sally Magnuson. The second book that I've got to discuss today is must probably the, one of the most powerful books you'll be reading this year. It's called The Sun Does Shine, and it's by Anthony Ray Hinton. It's published by Rider Books, and it's available in the shops as well. Now, the story is one of those miscarriage of justices that we hear about so often from America. But the book shows the generosity of spirit of the victim of this miscarriage of justice. The incredible story of wrongful imprisonment, injustice and hope by a man who spent 30 years on death row for a crime he didn't commit. In a case of mistaken identity, Anthony Ray Hinton was sentenced to death. The Sun Does Shine tells his dramatic 30-year journey, the injustice in the American legal system, and his remarkable resolve to survive. If you think there's no reason for another book about a grave miscarriage of American justice, then think again. Anthony Ray Hinton's memoir of his wrongful imprisonment for 30 years for three murders he did not commit is a riveting account of the multiple outrages of the criminal justice system of Alabama. But that isn't what makes this a genuine spiritual experience to read. That comes from the near-biblical capacity of the author to endure, to forgive, and finally to triumph. My only crime was being born black in Alabama, Hinton writes. His prosecution, nothing less than a lynching, in which the white robes of the Ku Klux Klan were replaced by the black robes of justice. One of his arresting officers explained his fate this way. After the prisoner told him he could prove he had been working at the time of one of the murders. You know I don't even care whether you did it or not. In fact, I believe you didn't do it. But it doesn't matter. If you didn't do it, one of your brothers did. And you're going to take the rap. You want to know why? The cop gives Hinton five reasons. Number one, you're black. Number one, number two, a white man going to say you shot him. Number three, you're going to have a white district attorney. Number four, you're going to have a white judge. And number five, you're going to have an all-white jury. The cop was right. Hinton was assigned an incompetent lawyer 
He was paid $1,000 by the state and then proceeded to hire an incompetent ballistics expert who guaranteed his conviction on fake evidence. In Alabama, Hinton writes, judges are elected based on how many people they send to death row, not on how many people they let off. With the help of his co-author, Laura Love Harden, Hinton conveys all the horror of his years in solitary confinement, barely able to breathe in 49 degree Celsius summer heat, eating food that tasted like dust. But something deep inside his character made it possible for him to make friends of everyone near him. From the white man next to him on death row, who had lynched a black teenager, to almost every single prison guard who met him. When Hinton convinces the prison warden about halfway through his three decades of imprisonment to allow him to receive books besides the Bible so that he can form a book club, the reader shares the exhilaration of Hinton and half a dozen of his fellow prisoners as they are finally able to travel outside the walls of the prison through the words of James Baldwin and Harper Lee. But the book club is short-lived. After the prisoners who are left out of it convinced the warden it is unfair to allow only some of them to become readers. The books are still passed around from cell to cell, but the meetings in the prison library have to come to an end. After every level of the Alabama court system had rejected Hinton's appeals multiple times, his lawyer decided to take his case directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. In 2015, Hinton's 30 years of unbroken prayers were answered, and the nation's highest court ruled unanimously in his favor. Fourteen months later, the district attorney in Alabama finally abandoned the case, and Hinton went free. Since then, Hinton has been able to forgive everyone responsible for his imprisonment, because that's how my mother raised me, and because I have a God who forgives. He has become an inspirational speaker traveling the country and the world. He has one message for everyone who will listen. Our system is broken, and it's time to put a stop to the death penalty. As my good friend Brian Stevenson says, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, but justice needs help. So this is the book, The Sun Does Shine, by the man who this injustice was committed to, Anthony Ray Hinton. He wrote it together with Laura Love Harden. It's published by Rider Books. And what I want to do is I want to read from the foreword. The foreword was written by his friend, the person who took his case up when every door in the Alabama legal system was closed to Anthony. And that's Brian Stevenson. And this is from Brian Stevenson's foreword to the book The Sun Does Shine. On the 3rd of April 2015, Anthony Ray Hinton was released from prison after spending nearly 30 years in solitary confinement on Alabama's death row. Mr. Hinton is one of the longest-serving con condemned prisoners facing execution in America to be proved innocent and released. Most of us can't possibly imagine what it feels like to be arrested, accused of something horrible, imprisoned, wrongly convicted because we don't have the money needed to defend ourselves, and then condemned to execution. For most people, it's simply inconceivable. Yet, it's important that we understand that it happens in America and that more of us need to do something to prevent it from happening again. 
Mr. Hinton grew up poor and black in rural Alabama. He learned to be a keen and thoughtful observer of the harsh realities of Jim Crow segregation and the way racial bias constrained the lives of people of color. He was taught by his remarkable mother to never see race or judge people because of their color. He resisted mightily the notion that he was arrested, charged, and wrongly convicted because of his race. But he ultimately couldn't accept any other explanation. He was a poor man in a criminal justice system that treats you better if you are rich and guilty if you are poor and innocent. He is blessed with an extraordinary sense of humor, which he relies on to overcome the racial barriers that condemn so many. He lived with his mother until he was in his late 20s and worked as a contract laborer. He had never been accused of a violent act before his arrest. I'm reading from the foreword written by Anthony Ray Hinton's lawyer, the lawyer who helped get him off death row. That's Brian Stevenson. It's the foreword to the book, The Sun Does Shine. We'll continue with this straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book, and I'm discussing a very, very powerful autobiography. It's The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton. He was one of the victims of American misjustice. He sat on death row for over 30 years. All the while, he was innocent of the murder that he was convicted of. And I'm reading from the foreword of the book, which was written by his lawyer, the person who took up his case after 30 years being in jail, Brian Stevenson. One night, while he was locked in a supermarket warehouse, cleaning floors in Bessemer, Alabama, a restaurant manager 15 miles away was abducted, robbed and shot by a single gunman as he left work. The victim survived and later misidentified Anthony Hinton as the person who'd robbed him. Despite the fact that Mr. Hinton was working in a secure facility with a guard who recorded everyone's arrival and departure, miles from the crime scene, police went to the home of Mr. Hinton's mother where they retrieved an old .38 caliber pistol. Alabama state forensic workers asserted this recovered gun was not only used in this recent robbery and attempted murder, but also two other murders in the Bessemer area where restaurant managers had been robbed and killed at closing. Based on this gun evidence, Anthony Hinton was arrested and indicted for both murders, where state prosecutors announced they would seek the death penalty. Anthony Hinton passed the polygraph examination administered by the police that confirmed his innocence, but state officials ignored this information and his alibi and persisted in obtaining two convictions and death sentences. At trial, Mr. Hinton's appointed lawyer failed to obtain a competent expert to rebut the state's false claims about his mother's gun. For 14 years, he could not obtain the legal help he needed to prove his innocence. Uh, this is the foreword to the book written by Anthony Hinton's lawyer, the one who helped get him off death row, Brian Stevenson. So Brian Stevenson worked with staff at Equal Justice at the Equal Justice Initiative to engage three of the nation's top firearm examiners, who all testify that the gun obtained from Mr. Hinton's mother could not be matched to the crime evidence. It took 14 more years of contested litigation and a rare unanimous ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court before Mr. Hinton was released in 2015. 
During his time on Alabama's death row, Mr. Denton watched 54 men walk past his door on their way to be executed. The execution chamber was 30 feet from his cell. Mr. Denton was sustained during his long years on Alabama's death row by a childhood friend who never failed to visit him over the course of nearly 30 years. Lester Bailey insisted that Mr. Denton never feel alone or abandoned. Mr. Denton learned to engage those around him and create an identity on death row unlike anything ever seen before. Not only did he shape the lives of dozens of other death row prisoners, but also those of correctional officers who sought Mr. Hinton's advice and counsel on everything from marriage and faith to the struggles of day-to-day life. While his case created years of disappointment and frustration for Mr. Hinton and cost this is uh, and cost his lawyer, his final lawyer, Brian Stevenson, many sleepless nights after each adverse legal ruling. They both could be frequently seen bowled over with laughter in the visitation room at Holman State Prison. Such is the extraordinary power of Ray Hinton and his remarkable spirit. People who've visited scores of prisons and jails to see hundreds of clients during many long careers are usually ignored or merely tolerated by correctional staff during these visits. There have been times when they are harassed or challenged by prison staff who seem to resent incarcerated people getting legal visits. However, those who visited Antony Ray Hinton say that their visit, visiting him was unlike any other legal visit. Never have more guards, correctional staff and prison workers pulled visitors aside to offer assistance or question them on how they could help than when working with Anthony Ray Hinton. His lawyer says, I have never experienced anything like it. Reading his story is difficult but necessary. We need to learn things about our criminal justice system, about the legacy of racial bias in America, and the way it can blind us to just and fair treatment of people. We need to understand the dangers posed by the politics of fear and anger that create systems like America's capital punishment system and the political dynamics that have made some courts and officials act so irresponsibly. We also need to learn about human dignity, about human worth and value. We need to think about the fact that we are all more than just, so that we are all more than the worst things we have done. Antony Ray Hinton's story helps us understand some of these problems and ultimately what it means to survive, to overcome, and to forgive. Since his release, Mr. Hinton has become an extraordinary public speaker and he has had life changing impact on audiences who hear him. His Rennie's ability to mix humor, deep emotion, and compelling storytelling to move people to share his agonizing but ultimately triumphant journey. His message of forgiveness is transformative and has, he has been seen to inspire groups of people as diverse as hardened police chiefs and prosecutors to young at-risk teens and students. His story is one of forgiveness, friendship, and triumph. It is situated amid racism, poverty, and an unreliable criminal justice system. Mr. Hinton presents the narrative of a condemned man shaped by a painful and torturous journey around the gates of death, who nevertheless remains hopeful, forgiving, and faithful. This book is something of a miracle because there were many moments when it was believed that Anthony Ray Hinton would never survive to tell the story. The book is The Sun Does Shine, 
It's the story of Anthony Rayhinton. It's co-written with Laura Love Harden. It's published by Ryder. It is available in the shops. And it's a very, very powerful memoir of a person who was wrongly convicted for crimes, murders he never committed, and sat on death row for 30 years until he was helped by Brian Stevenson, who took the case to the American Supreme Court and had his convictions overturned. And then the forgiveness that Anton Ray Hinton just emanates, that emanates from him. So that's the second book that we've looked at today. The next book we're going to look at is also a very, very topical uh, story. It's about refugees and asylum seekers. The book's called The Boat People. It's written by Sharon Bella, and it's published by Doubleday. It also has been released already into the book source. The Boat People by Sharon Bella. The two pieces of Canadian history lie behind Sharon Bella's debut novel, The Boat People. The first involves the arrival in August 2010 of the merchant vessel Sunsea at the Equimalt naval base in British Columbia, carrying hundreds of Sri Lankan asylum seekers. The second piece of Canadian history involves the internment of almost 24,000 Canadian citizens of Japanese origin in the Slocan Valley by the British Columbia Security Commission between 1941 and 1949. The arrival of the refugees in 2010 is fictionalized through the voices of the widower Mahindran, Mahindan, a resourceful father rendered unscrupulous by the circumstances of a terrible Sri Lankan civil war, who has arrived with his six-year-old son, Selian, and Priya Rajasekaran, a law student assigned to represent the refugees. Grace Nakamura, an adjudicator for the Immigration and Refugee Board, provides the connection to 1941 through her mother, Kumi. The latter, her mind laced with dementia, sallies forth like a Greek chorus to insist that subjecting foreign asylum seekers to the processes established by rule of law is the same as the forced removal and incarceration of law-abiding citizens. It's Bala vilifies the Canadian Border Services Agency and the draconian immigration laws and penalties that can be traced to the Prime Minister of the time. This was the previous Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and she sings the praises of the Canadian Tamil Congress, which appears here as the Tamil Alliance. So you get the feeling that you, this is fiction, but it's really based on real events, both the immediate refugees crossing borders today, fleeing civil wars, looking for a better life, and also historical events, the internment of Japanese, Canadian Japanese during World War II. The compassionate lens promised on the book's cover shows us the feelings of the people who have been subjected to these different legal processes. The author, Sharon Ballet, is particularly fond of using different language terms that will elicit our sympathy. There are many characters that come to the fore in the novel. One of them, Grace, Grace's world-weary colleague Michael Hurst, shows up a number of times during the story to 
show the difficulties that people moving through the asylum-seeking process in uh, in Canada, the difficulties that they face. The author plays with time through flashbacks told in the present tense, an innovative approach well suited to capturing the upside-down nature of refugee narrat- narratives. With a treasure trove of material, it is mystifying. So it's it's a very powerful way for the for the author to then show us both the incarceration of Japanese during World War Two and also the 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 processes, the the, the hardships that the legal system subjects uh, subjects refugees to today. So this is a book that's both yanked out of the headlines today with such mass migration of refugees across oceans and also the 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 war in Sri Lanka that's a civil war that has come to an end but the country still building itself up from 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 years and years of war and also it's a book that pulls from the history books looking at the incarceration of Japanese uh Canadians during the Second World War. The book's called The Boat Peoples by Sharon Bella. It's very, very topical. And as I said, she's able to elicit our sympathy and our emotions for for these people who've pitched up on Canada's shores uh, and they're looking for these refugees, looking for a new life. The next book we're going to look at is a non-fiction title. It's called Elastic, Flexible Thinking in a Time of Change, and it's by Leonard Mlodino. It's published by Alan Lane and also available in the shops at the moment. Everyone knows we should be concerned about ecosystems, but what about the ecosystem inside our skull? Research suggests that new ideas and solutions to problems often arise when our minds are not focused on a particular task but running in the high-connectivity state recently identified as the default network. Yet in an age of smartphones, social media, and other electronic crackpipes, it is all too easy to keep focusing on one trivial thing after another, and so never allowing the brain to unplug, even partially, which uh, is becoming formalized the idea of giving your time your brain off time this this state of mind is becoming the focus of a young discipline with the nice name of eco psychology just as ecology aims to bolster biodiversity in physical spaces eco psychology aims to keep us to keep our minds fertile terrain for green shoots of constructive thinking this is one of the lessons of this very elegant and interesting book, Elastic, by Leonard Mladino, which adopts the commercial form of the Smart Thinking Airport Manual but works with ideas at a higher level. Leonard Mladino is a theoretical physicist who has also worked as a writer on Star Trek. So, with these different backgrounds that he's coming from, he obviously he's obviously annoyingly good at the kind of boundary-hopping cognition that he champions. Elastic thinking is the name he gives to the new way, to the way new and creative ideas pop up into our conscious minds in moments of insight. He contrasts elastic thinking with analytic thinking, 
which is our rule-led, logical, conscious thought. Many other writers have covered similar terrain. Daniel Kahneman in Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Uh, also Malcolm Gladwell in many of his books. Other writers have rhetorically downgraded analytic, analytical thinking in order to champion the elastic or intuitive kind. But as Mladino emphasizes, we need both. Elastic thinking generates a lot of rubbish as well as a few gems. The job of analytic thinking is to sift for the diamonds in the rough and then polish them. A new scientific idea, for instance, is generated through elastic thinking, but then must be tested and worked out fully with the analytic mind. The problem, as the author sees it, is finding the right balance. A purely logical reasoning style is not creative. A purely elastic one is all over the show. But most people could do with a larger proportion of elastic thinking. Hence the advice to manage one's info consumption according to the precepts of eco-psychology. Particularly in the modern world, Mladino argues we need more of elastic thinking's capacity to let go of comfortable ideas and become accustomed to ambiguity and contradiction. It turns out that we might approach problems more creatively if our executive conscious brain is exhausted from having focused on lots of boring choices. So, a few hours doing your accounts might help you write a better sonnet afterwards. Alternatively, if you find the world to be a fuzzy place in the mornings due to sleep inertia, which Mladino charmingly exists is true to him, he says, in my morning stupor, I have done things like crack an egg into the sink and then start to fry the shell. So if that's you, you will do your best writing soon after waking up. The book is packed with other insights, puzzles and philosophical interludes about how we often follow scripts in our social behavior, rather like video game characters, about how thinking itself is a bodily pleasure, something that is too rarely remarked on, and about the authentic intellectual beauty that can be appreciated even in ideas that turn out to be wrong. Mladino notes that we have been able to program computers to emulate analytic thinking in very specific domains, such as playing chess. But elastic thinking is something no artificial system has ever demonstrated, regardless of any PR jargon about deep learning and the like. If you want to create a general problem-solving brain, he concludes happily the best way is still to find a mate and create a new human being. There is no shortage of popular books making exaggerated claims about science's understanding of creative thinking. Um, but as a scientist himself, Mladino is laudably careful not to overstate his case. This is a quote. It is an oversimplification to chalk up anything as complex as a personality trait to a single gene. So in his book Elastic... Uh, flexible thinking in a time of change, while nodding to the business market, still is refreshingly free of the curious moralizing that often accompanies such how-to guides, which conflate imaginative thought with being a healthy 21st century citizen, employee, all in the approved productivity-enhancing ways. Not many other authors will advise the reader to get to try getting drunk or better totally baked if they have a tough problem to solve. And it even turns out that procrastination does help. So that's Leonard Mladino's book, Elastic. 
Flexible Thinking in a Time of Change, published by Alan Lane and available in shops. We'll be back with some more great titles straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and we are talking books. Just to remind everyone listening that if there's a book that you've heard on the show or an interview and you want to know who the person was, what the title of the book was, go to our Facebook page. Go to Facebook and search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and you'll have for years going back, two years at least, all the books that have been reviewed on the show, all the authors that we have interviewed, and it's a good resource if you're looking for a book, for a gift, something for yourself. It's a great resource to, 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 to tap into. The next book we're going to talk about is called Blood Money. It's by Johan Rath. It's stories of an ex-Rekki's mission as a private military contractor in Iraq. Johan Rath and a security team were ambushed in May 2004 while on a mission to search out, to spy out a power plant south of Baghdad on behalf of an American firm. He had been in the country for only two weeks. This was a taste of what was to come over the next few years as he worked as a private military contractor, that's a PMC in Iraq. His mission? Not to wage war, but to protect lives. Rath and his team provided security for engineers working on reconstruction projects in Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein. Whether in the notorious Triangle of Death, in the deadly area around Ramadi, or in the faction-ridden marshlands southeast of Basra, Rath had numerous hair-raising experiences. Key to his survival was his training as a Special Forces Operator, or Reki. This book, Blood Money, is the riveting account of his time in Iraq. And it's the first war, it's the first book on the war in Iraq by South African. It offers a rare glimpse into the world of private military contractors and the realities of everyday life in one of the world's most violent conflict zones. Books published by Delta Publishers, which is a division of Jonathan Ball Publishers, and it's one of one, one another book on the show today that could have been plucked from news headlines or from the opening story on the news on the top of the hour. That's Blood Money by Johan Rath. It's available in shops at the moment. Now, the next book, just a very quick review. It's a Japanese book. So it's a crime thriller, but from a very, very exotic location for us English readers on the southern top of Africa. The book is called 17 and it's by Hideo Yokoyama. I did review his previous book which was called 6-4 on the show a few years ago. Hideo Yokoyama was born in 1957. He's worked for 12 years as an investigative reporter with a regional newspaper north of Tokyo. That was before he became one of Japan's most acclaimed fiction writers. Seventeen is his second novel to be translated into English. His first, as I mentioned, Six Four, was a bestseller all around the world and became the first Japanese novel to be shortlisted for the CWA International Dagger, was named the Crime and Thriller. It was named in the Crime and Thrillers of 2016 Roundups 
for in each of the Guardian, the Telegraph, the Financial Times, and the Glasgow Herald. This has been translated into 13 languages. His new book, 17, has been translated by Louise Hill Kawai, and it's once again taking us into Japanese thriller writing. Uh, 520 people died on that mountain, that sparkling mountain. In 1985, Kazumasa Yuki, a seasoned reporter at the North Kanto Times, runs a daily gauntlet against the power struggles and the office politics that plague its newsroom. But when an air disaster of unprecedented scale occurs on the newspaper's doorstep, its staff are united by an unimaginable horror and a -a once-in-a-lifetime scoop. Now it's 2002, 17 years later. Yuki remembers the adrenaline-fueled, emotionally charged seven days that changed his and his colleagues' lives. He does so while making good on a promise he made that fateful week, one that holds the key to its last unsolved mystery and represents Yuki's final unconquered fear. So this is the 17 years that span the, the air disaster, and then Yuki's fulfillment of his promise. The book is fast-paced. It's a wonderful opportunity to introduce yourself to Japan, uh, to us, a very, very foreign society, a, high, a very, very highly sophisticated, technologically savvy society, but for us, very exotic. And the thriller writing, once he gets going, he's just... Uh, um, Hideo Yokoyama just pushes and pushes and pushes like he did in his book 6-4 and for everybody who's coming from an English reading background or South African background following the names and all the people can be very very difficult at the back of the book there's character glossary with all the main people and a few lines about who they are what they do their role in the book in the novel so it makes reading the book that much easier because all the names are Japanese we wouldn't be familiar with these names so at the end Hideo Yokoyama has given us a name glossary so that's crime thriller published by Riverrun 17 set in Japan written by Hideo Yokoyama he's one of Japan's best selling thriller writers and he's making splashes across the world in his English language translations We'll be back with two more books straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The next book I'm going to talk about is called The Italian Teacher, and it's by Tom Rachman. And when I saw Tom Rachman had a new book out, I just said, I've got to get it. Because Tom Rachman's first novel was a collection of interconnected short stories. The Imperfectionists was just... One of those books that sell you on an author for the rest of their writing career. In 2010, young journalist Tom Rachman published the book that I just mentioned, The Imperfectionists, about the staff of an impoverished international newspaper in Rome. As I said, interlinking short stories constructed around witty character sketches. That book, The Imperfectionists, was just one of those wild balls that you catch and you just keep running with now his third novel is out and it's called The Italian Teacher 
when his first book came out, one of the reviewers, Christopher Buckley, raved. And he said, I almost feel sorry for Rachman because a debut of this order sets the bar so high. And that's true. But his third novel confirms Rachman's reputation as a shepherd of lost souls. It tells the story of Pinch, a man whose whole life is overshadowed by his father, the great 20th century artist Bear Bavinsky. Bear is a fictional character, so if you haven't heard of him, that's okay. But Rachman takes scissors and paste to the museum catalogue and he creates this giant, this absolute giant of a 21st century artist. He paints Bear so cleverly into the canon of contemporary art that you may feel like you have seen one of his still lifes in a modern museum that you've visited. We have the following in the book. Art for a magazine extols his cult status among those returning to figurative art. So, kinder than Picasso, though just as philandering, this fictional artist, Bear, inflates his status by burning almost all his work except for a few dozen masterpieces. As framed by Rachman, he's that most enchanting breed of celebrity, the artist who rejects celebrity status. Bear entices wealthy clientele and gallery owners by dismissing them. You won't like this, he tells a crowd of fawning admirers. But I never painted to get on the walls of some palace. In Rachman's satire, the pretensions of the art world seem to reach off the page. He draws the academic leeches glommed onto other talents, the talents of others. He makes fun of the clueless collectors, hoping to bar their way to tastefulness, and especially the art gallery fiends with white faces, asymmetrical haircuts, interesting glasses. The novel opens up in the mid-1950s when Little Pinch is living with his mother, a potter, in Rome. Bear comes barreling over from New York for the summer, and their lives blossom in the heat of his dazzling personality. He displays an egotist's affections, grand, effusive, self-effacing, only in service of of his own self-promotion. And Rachman is a brilliant choreographer of skewered desires. We can feel Pinch's giddy delight, even as we sense his mother's growing des- his mother growing desperate for something more than Bear's erratic empty praises. It's hard to be the son of a world-class artistic genius. It's impossible to be the wife. After those happy seeming childhood years in Rome, the Italian teacher follows Pinch into an awkward adolescence and beyond to college. With his own artistic aspirations, he's constantly torn between exploiting his friendship to the famous man or proving that he can succeed on his own merits. In the end, Pinch can't do either, which is just the kind of slowly grinding humiliation that Rachman's wit captures so tenderly. That, in fact, may be Rachman's greatest skill. He is a deft way of describing atrocious behavior without damning his characters, without suggestions that they are entirely circumscribed by their worst acts. His comedy is tempered by a kind of gentleness that's a salve in these mean times. A less generous son or a less generous author would have grown to resent this manic, depressive mother 
and this narcissistic father. But Rachman is so good at placing us inside the young man's naive affections that we're tempted to believe again and again that this time, yes, this time, his father bear will not pass him over, stand him up or crush his hopes with such friendly obliviousness. Though Bear can never change, the novel about him does. About halfway through, just as the pace of Pinch's cramped life grows slack, a 31-year-old teenager, this is a quote, with bad skin and thinning locks, damp tweed jacket, an exotic touch of intrigue arises in the Italian teacher. At several points, in fact, you'd be reminded of writers like Peter Carey's uh, uh, brilliant novel Theft, about a complicated trio of art forgers. But Rachman brings his own warmer touch to the crime, transforming it into a surprising act of defiance that's both deliciously ironic and deeply affectionate. This is a novel about art and the mercurial currents of fate that determine how it's celebrated, valued and commodified. But more than anything else, the Italian teaches about fathers and sons, the anxiety of influence and the sly ways we go about carving a little space for ourselves in the shadow of great masters. Once again, it proves Tom Rachman's abilities to write about tortured souls, to hold the, uh, the, 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 the mirror up to society, and just his talents as a writer of great, great, great fiction. So that's the show for today. We've done seven books. Just to quickly recap them before I step out the studio. We looked at The Boat People by Sharon Ballas, um, Sri Lankan refugees arriving in Canada, Elastic, Leonard Nolino's book about how our minds should be more elastic to create more creative, Johan Rath's Blood Money, First South African book about a private, uh, a private a mer- not quite a mercenary, but private army in Iraq, 17, Japanese thriller writing, The Seal Woman's Gift by Sally Magnuson, The Sun Doesn't Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton, who was on death row in America for 30 years for murders he didn't commit, and finally, The Italian Teacher by Tom Rachman, published by River Run, and also available in the shops now. Until next week, good Shabbos, and keep reading.